Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. So this week we are in the the fourth week of our study on emotions. We're going to finish up uh, next Sunday. We're going to be looking at um, pins dropping. We're going to be looking at one of the the biggest emotional struggles that most of us deal with, and that's the the emotion of shame. Uh, we sin, we mess up, and we feel shame because of what we've done, and we feel unworthy. But this morning. Uh, we're going to look at another emotion that we all deal with from some uh, one extent or another, and that's the emotion of envy. Uh, we've said that emotions are like smoke from a fire. You see smoke, you follow the trail of smoke to the source of the fire. And so our emotions help us follow the trail to find out what is really going on in our heart. Another way of looking at it is emotions are like the check engine light on your dashboard. There are two types of people in this room. There are those of you who, when your check engine light comes on, you immediately take it to a technician to find out what's going on and fix it. And then there's those of us who have our check engine light on for the entire life of our vehicle. And as long as nothing blows up, we're fine. How many of y'all are in that first group? You fix it right away. All right, how many of y'all are like me and you're like, I'll tape it over, who cares? It's not smoking, it's working, I don't care, whatever. Uh, yeah, my check engine light has been on for about nine months now, and uh, it's going to be on until the engine blows up, and I think, I should have checked the engine, uh, but oh well. Uh, but no, mine's on, I know what's wrong with mine, and it's not fixable without putting more into it than the value of the car, but it works, so I don't care. Uh, but anyway, a check engine light, you know, you, it, the, the problem when your check engine light comes on is not the light. It tells you there's a deeper problem. And unless it's something obvious, like these newer cars today, like April's car, hers isn't super new, but it's newer than mine. And you know, I drive a 2004. Uh, she, you know, and I always, I'm always gonna get as old a vehicle as I can get because I, can, I, I know how to fix them. I know, what's, you know something's wrong, I can fix that. You know, I get a, a 2020, I have no idea what these blinking lights mean and I can't get anything. So I like older vehicles because I can work on them, I can fix them, I know what's, what's going on, plus they're cheap. Um, but her car, you know, if you know, she gets a light if her gas cap isn't on tight enough. How many of y'all have those? Where your gas, and you get a light, oh, your gas cap's not on. And I'm like, that's, that's an issue? But it is. But, you know, so newer cars, you get a specific light for a specific thing. Mine, when my check engine light comes on, it blinks a code. And I have to count the blinks and then look up the code to figure out what's going on. Or I can take it to a mechanic. I can take it to AutoZone. They can hook it up to a computer, and they can tell me what's wrong. So when your check engine light comes on, you typically don't immediately know what it is. You have to go to an expert, they hook it up to a machine, and the machine tells you what the problem is. And the check engine light's not gonna go off until you fix the problem or put tape over it. But I don't recommend putting tape over it, especially when we're talking about your emotions. When your emotions start flashing a check engine light, don't just ignore it. Don't put tape on it thinking it's gonna go away. You gotta fix it. You gotta figure out what the problem is. And the Bible helps us 
understand. Helps us read the code of our heart so we can know what's going on. The Bible helps us know what's going on in our heart better than a, a light can on your dashboard. And that's especially clear with the emotion of envy. With, with every other emotion we've studied, uh, the best thing to do when you're struggling with envy is not ignore it. If you ignore these issues, if you ignore, the, ignore these, these warning lights, if you ignore the smoke when you first see it, it just makes the problem worse and worse. The envy is like a check engine light on your, on your car, on your heart, and it points to a major problem. And the, the Bible unpacks the subject of envy in a kind of obscure story in the book of Numbers chapter 11. So you can get your Bibles open to Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, the children of Israel have been freed from slavery for 13 months. For 13 months, they have been wandering. The de- now, they're not wandering. They, God is taking them down a path. And I've done a study on this before, uh, personally. I don't know if I've ever preached it here. But the, the trip from the crossing of the Red Sea to Mount Sinai to the Promised Land should have taken them about 35 days. But God had them take that journey for over a year because God had some, some things to teach them, some things to prepare them for before they could go into the promised land. But you got to put yourself in their situation. If you're preparing for a journey that you know is going to take you about a month and suddenly you're there for 13 months, you've run out of provisions. You've run out of water. You've run out of food. You've, but no matter what they were facing, God through the entire time, had taken care of them. He'd given them water from a rock in the middle of the desert. He had been guiding them as a pillar of cloud by day to protect them from the scorching sun of the desert. And then he would be a pillar of fire at night because in the desert, the temperatures can reach well over 100 degrees during the day, but can plummet at night to almost freezing. So he shielded them during the day. He gave them a fire to keep them warm at night. He gave them manna from heaven every single morning. He fed them. He provided for them. He protected them. He gave them everything that they needed. But it, it wasn't enough for them. Look at Numbers 11, starting in chapter 1. I'm sorry, Numbers 11, verse 1. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost part of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And the Lord called the name of the place Taberath, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. And the mixed multitude was among them, that was among them, fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh? To eat now the the Hebrew word mixed multitude uh, the Hebrew is the actual Hebrew word is ashafsof and it literally means riffraff or rabble and so what is a riffraff or rabble well basically it means a worthless group of people they they were Israelites 
But they were nothing but trouble. And they, they start complaining. And their complaining spreads throughout the camp. So it's not just this group of, of troublemakers, this group of worthless people complaining. Eventually, everyone starts to think, you know, they got a point. And we have no meat to eat. Look at verse number five. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the, and the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof was a color of, of bedlam. So th they, these, these people, they start complaining. Now remember, they've been there, they've been in the desert for 13 months, and for 13 months, God has fed them every single day. He's given them manna from heaven every single day. Now, he, God could have fed them with every day they could go out and they had an abundance of deer to hunt or an abundance of, of animals to kill or they could go fishing every day and every time they went fishing they caught a bunch of fish. But, but God wouldn't even better. God said, I'm not going to make you work for your food. I'm not going to make you go hunt or fish. Or I'm not going to make sure there's plenty there and you got to earn it. God said, every morning when you wake up, you're going to leave your tent and when you leave your tent, I'm going to have food all over the ground for you. All you got to do is pick it up. You could pick up as much as you wanted. For you, your family, you could pick up as much as you wanted for that day. Now, you couldn't store it for the next day, so whatever you, whatever you picked up, you had to eat. But God said, eat as much as you want. It's a, it's a all-you-can-eat buffet of manna. Every day, just walk out of your tent, grab what you're going to eat, and eat it for that day. Now, on the, the day before the Sabbath, you could gather two days, so you didn't have to gather on the Sabbath. But God said, every day, I'm going to give you exactly what you need. And this group says, it's not enough. Yeah, the man is providing for us. The man is feeding us. The man is keeping us, you know, sustained. But man, I wish we could have some, some fish, some garlic, some cucumbers, some onions. Man, I, I miss the food we used to eat. In Egypt. It was better for us in Egypt. Now, they may have eaten better in Egypt, but they were slaves in Egypt. And I guarantee you, they didn't eat that well. Because typically, people who own slaves don't feed them that well. They're not giving them, they may have some onions and leeks and garlic, but the stuff they're getting is the stuff the Egyptians don't want, so it's not the best. They may get fish, but it's the three-day-old fish, but it's still fish. So they're looking at their life, and they're saying, we're, we're free, we're provided for, we're protected, we're taken care of, but it's not enough. It was better for us when we lived in slavery. Now look at verse number 10. Jump down to verse number 10 in chapter 11. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, Moses also was displeased. So this story, it brings up a couple questions about envy and how, what we need to do in our lives to make sure we can overcome this emotion. First thing we want to look at is what is envy? 
What is envy? The, the simplest answer is envy is wanting what you don't have. Feeling like what you have isn't enough. Maybe it's thinking that you deserve more than you have. And when we, when we think about that, when we say, I don't have what I deserve, we are saying God isn't as good to me as he should be. God is not treating me the way I deserve to be treated. Now, envy can start with, with discontentment. Discontent that you don't have something that you think you need. Discontent you don't have something someone else has that you think you deserve more than they deserve. Because you know how they are. You know what type of people they are. They're bad people. They don't go to church. They don't, they don't love God. But yet they've got this thing that I deserve, that I don't have, and so I deserve it. It can start with discontentment, but it can quickly turn into resentment. Resentment towards others because you don't have what they have. And resentment towards God because he's not giving you what you think you deserve. And so not only does someone have, not only do you want what someone else has, but you can actually end up hating them because they have what you don't. You know, the Bible tells us that we as believers, we are supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy does the exact opposite. Envy rejoices when others weep, and it weeps when others rejoice. The Germans have a word for this, schadenfreude. It literally means pain joy. You find pain in yourself when other people are happy, but when other people are hurting, you're happy about it. You find joy in other people's pain. And envy thrives off of comparison. Comparing your situation to someone else's Situation And these, we can have, there are three different ways that we can compare ourselves with other people. The first one is material comparison. You see someone on Facebook and they post a picture of their brand new truck. And it's shiny and it's big and it, it looks awesome. And you've been fine with your car up until now. And now you got to have their truck. you gotta have, you got to have something newer and better than what you have now. You see a, a, one of your friends on Facebook, they post a picture of brownies that they made, but you're not paying attention to the brownies. You're looking at their, their countertop. They have a nice marble countertop. They've got beautiful cabinets. they got a great backsplash. And you're like, they have the kitchen that I want. That's the kitchen of my dreams. And so automatically, you hate her brownies. You don't know what they taste like. You don't even care what they taste like. You hate her brownies because of her. She's got the perfect kitchen. Maybe uh, one of your friends posts a family picture at the beach, and it's the 12th time they've been to the beach this year, and you can't afford a sprinkler. And you're like, I, I hate them. 
Why do they get what I don't have? Why do they get to go to the beach so much? Why do they get to, why do they have the absolute perfect family and mine's falling to pieces? With material comparison, you're always envious of what someone else has. Then there's relational comparison. You see a post where your friends are all hanging out and having a good time, and they didn't invite you. And you get, you get upset about that. You get angry about that. You get hurt by that. Or maybe everybody you know has a significant other. They've got a boyfriend or girlfriend. They've got a fiancé or whatever. They're married. And you're like, I am so much better looking than all of them. How come I can't find somebody? How come I can't find someone to love me like they have someone to love me? Or at Christmas, you get that, that, that Christmas card from the perfect Christian family and you can't get your family in the same room to take a picture without them yelling and screaming at each other? And she's like, how come, how come they get a marriage that I can't have? How come they have a family I can't have? How come they have relationships I don't have? Then there's circumstantial comparison. You compare yourself to someone else's situation in life. They have a job that you wish you had. They have the financial freedom that you just can't seem to find. And it's easy to, it's easy to feel this way. And look, even as a pastor, it's easy to feel this way. You know, I see other pastors, what they post on Facebook. And you know how, oh, we had a, a great service, and we had, you know, a number, uh, you know, a record number come in, and all oh, my church people are the best. And I think, my church people stink. <laughs> they don't. Uh, but, you know, they, they post all this stuff, and, you know, it's easy to see, you know, oh, well, you know, they're getting blessed this way, and they have this going on, and they have this wonderful situation in their church, and I just, I'm, you know, I'm struggling in this way or that way. And so it's really easy to compare yourself with someone else's uh, situation. Maybe a more serious note, you know, someone you know posts a picture on Facebook of their brand new baby, and you're struggling with infertility, or you've never been able to have kids. That causes some, some envy there. Sociologists say that envy in this generation is a bigger problem now than it's ever been at any time in history. And it's very easy to understand why. Social media has caused more envy than ever before. And it seems destined to play on envy. It makes it impossible not to see what other people have, what other people are doing, and be envious of their life. Um, you know, when you look at other people's lives on social media, though, you have to understand you are seeing a filtered version of their life. So you look at other people's lives and you see the best that they have to put forward, and you compare their filtered, you know, perfect version of their life with your behind-the-scenes life. And you know your behind-the-scenes life is a mess, but you don't know anything about theirs. So you're looking at their best, of, you're looking at their best day, their best moment, and you're comparing it to your worst moment. So we feel like we're losers because we see the best of their best and we know the worst of our worst. I heard a story about two moms who uh, were talking and they confessed that they hated each other on social media. And one of them was a working mom 
and one of them was a stay-at-home mom. The working mom said, I hate looking at your posts, and I don't even like to hang around you because I see your, your picture-perfect Pinterest mom life. You do crafts with your kids. You're baking with your kids. You, you have dedicated time to spend with each of your kids, and I feel like I'm missing everything because I'm working. The stay-at-home mom said, well, I hate looking at your post because you're going out to dinners, you're socializing, you're getting your nails and your hair done, and I haven't had, a, I haven't had my nails done or talked to an adult in eight years. They were both, both envious of the other person's life. They were two people longing for what the other person had based on a filtered presentation on social media. No other time in history have you been able to see how popular you are than you have today. You know, when I was in high school, you know how I, I, I had to figure out how I was, if I was popular? If there was a party and you got invited to it or you threw a party and people came? By the way, when I threw parties, I was very popular. Uh, I mean, we all, we all just saw, you know, we sat around reading the Bible and, you know, singing hymns. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, but anyway, uh, you had to figure out a way if you were popular. Now, you know how you can tell if you're popular? How many people like your posts? How many, how many followers do you have on Instagram? You know, I would say Facebook, but that's for old people. Uh, you know, how many people like what you do or like what you say? And you can compare, well, I posted this picture and I only got 10 likes, but this person posted a picture very similar to it and they got 300 likes. They're more popular. And you're comparing yourself to other people people. You know, we compare ourselves to other on social media, and then we become less satisfied with our lives. There was a recent study that took uh, college students from two different universities, and they had them spend 30 minutes, just 30 minutes, looking at Instagram, the Instagram accounts of college students. They didn't know them. It wasn't friends. It was just random people in the same stage of life. When the 30 minutes were over, they, they talked to them. One-third of the students who participated said that they were significantly depressed after spending 30 minutes looking at Instagram. The, and um, more than the rest of them said that they were significantly more down than normal after just 30 minutes of looking at reg, just random Instagram accounts. See, envy is all around us, but we don't understand how deadly it is. We think, man, envy is just like, you know, petty jealousy that comes, you know, it's the green-eyed monster, and, you know, it's no big deal. The Bible takes envy very seriously. Jonathan Edwards said, never underestimate the spiritual power of envy. Look at verse number six again. It says, but now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. The, the phrase there, souls dried away, it literally means that they had lost their willingness to live. All we have is manna, so I don't want to live anymore. Life is not worth living if I don't have meat instead of manna. Now look, I love meat as much as the next guy, but these people had never tasted bacon, so I don't know what they're complaining about. But they're like, what God's given us is not enough. It's not good enough, and so it's not even worth living. So comparison and envy had dried up their soul. Proverbs tells us that envy makes our bones rot. Envy and comparison 
rots us down to our bones, and it destroys our ability to enjoy anything in life. When you are struggling with envy, you will start to find fault in everything. Just like the children of Israel. They'd enjoyed manna for over a year. Now all of a sudden it's terrible. Now all of a sudden it's, it's garbage. We can't stand this stuff. Martin Luther said that when, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, anybody know what the, the Tenth Commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. You know why he said he ended it with thou shalt not covet? Martin Luther says because if you could keep that commandment, you'd obey all the rest of them. Because we lie, we steal, we commit adultery, we kill, we have idolatry, because we covet what someone else has. We are envious of someone else. James 3 says, But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, do not boast and do not lie against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. For where there is envying and strife, there is confusion in every evil work. See, envy is a root sin that brings up all other kinds of sins in our lives that we have to deal with. So that brings us to the second question. What causes envy? Well, in, in, in uh, Hebrews, in Deuteronomy 11, we see four, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 11, we see four root causes of envy. And if we recognize these root causes, we can pull them up from the roots and deal with the envy in our heart. Here's the first problem. Envy forgets God's goodness that we have received in the past. Look at verse 1 again. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. They are openly complaining to God about how God has treated them, about what God has done to them. They are complaining to God, saying, God... We, are, we have been through so many hardships. What hardships have they been through? They left Egypt loaded down with the wealth of Egypt. They walked out of there with jewels and gold and animals. They walked out of there with more than any, any other slave ever walked out with. They walked out, the Bible says, burdened down with the wealth of Egypt. Then they come to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's bearing down on them. And what hardship, it was hard for them to fight Pharaoh. No, they didn't fight Pharaoh. God parted the Red Sea. They walked through and then turned around and see God destroy Pharaoh. They've had no hardships. Yeah, they're in the desert. God's given them air conditioning and heat during the day and heat at night. Well, yeah, but they got no, there's no, you know, nothing grows in the desert. Doesn't matter. God's given you food every single day. Well, there's no water in the desert. Doesn't matter. There's a rock that follows you and gives you water anytime you need it. They have had no hardships. They forgot how good God had been to them in the past. They are no longer slaves. But now they're saying, we were better off as slaves because the salads were better. 
We had fish as a slave. Yeah, we were mistreated. Yeah, we had to work. Yeah, they had a habit of drowning our boy children in the river every couple years. Yeah, that was bad, but man, those garlic and onions, man, they were good. Look, I like garlic as much as the next guy. Not that much. But they're like, man, it was just so much better for us when we were slaves. They were totally oblivious to where they would have been if God hadn't freed them. If God hadn't given grace, if God hadn't showed mercy, and they also didn't recognize how God's goodness in the past meant God was going to take care of them in the future. A God that delivered them from slavery, that saved them in the past, would surely take care of them. And we see this in the Bible. You know, Moses, the first time God gets mad at him because he gets them out Sinai, they build the golden calves, and it, God's like, I'm going to kill all of them and just start over with you. You know what Moses said? He says, God, what are people going to think if they say, you just freed them from slavery to kill them in the wilderness? They're going to talk bad about you, God. So why would God free them from slavery, destroy the Egyptian economy, destroy the Egyptian army, just let them die in the wilderness with no food? God said, I was good to you then. I'm going to be good to you no matter what you're facing. Envy is unaware of what it deserves. Envy acts like God owes us more than what we've received. So when you start to get envious, and you even look at someone else's life, and look, it's easy. You know, you look at the list of the top, wealth, the top 100 wealthiest people in the world. You know how many of those top 100 wealthiest people in the world are good, God-fearing, church-going Christians? I'm guessing probably none of them. And you look and you're like, how can these evil, wicked, immoral people, how can they have so much? And here we are, we're loving God. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're serving Him. We're in church on Sunday morning. We're faithful to our tithes and offerings. We're doing what we're supposed to do. We're trying to worship Him. We're reading the Bible. We're praying. We're doing everything right, and we're struggling. How is that fair? We've got to understand, what do we really deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve, and I've, I've heard people say, if God gave us what we deserve and we die, we'd be in hell. No, if God gave us what we deserved, we'd be in hell right now. We don't deserve anything good. We were rebels to, against God and through His grace. Look, if you're saved this morning, it's not because you're such a good person. It's not because you tried real hard. It's because God did everything needed for your salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all you did was to have the common sense and the good intelligence to put your faith in Him. You deserve nothing. But through God, we receive an incredible inheritance. His Spirit, you know, we should be under judgment in hell. Instead, we're children of God. His Spirit lives inside of us, and we have a promised inheritance that can never be taken away. So no matter what you have down here, no matter what you're facing down here, you have more than you deserve, no matter what you're facing. So reflect 
on the incredible kindness of God in absorbing the wrath of the Father for you. God's delivered us from an eternity of paying for our sins by paying them for us. See, the cross proves that God will withhold no good thing from His children. So envy forgets the goodness we've received in the past. Second thing, what causes envy? Envy overlooks God's goodness in the presence. In the present. Envy cripples your ability to enjoy the good things you have in life. God has given you many things in your life that are meant to bring you joy, but when you're envious of what other people have, you miss every single one of them. The, the Israelites said, man, all we have is manna, and we're going to die because all we have is manna. But that wasn't true. They'd received manna for 13 months. They'd never gone hungry. They'd never been without. Whatever was in that manna, gave them all the vitamins and minerals and fiber and protein and everything they needed to survive and thrive as they walked through the desert. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses says that during the 40 years of wandering, where for 40 years all they ate was manna, says their feet never swelled. Now, in this culture, your feet swelling was a sign of malnutrition. So Moses said, for 40 years we wandered and we never, we never got malnourished. That manna that God gave us took care of every single need we had. Envy assumes that if all I have is what God gives me, then it won't be enough. God's not providing everything I need. And that is a lie of the enemy. It keeps you from enjoying what God has given you today. For your joy. See, envy was the key element in the Garden of Eden. God tells Adam and Eve, this garden is full of all types of food. You can eat of any tree that you want. And look, I, don't, I, I really I honestly believe that there were trees in the garden that we, we can't even imagine that we don't have today. I do not believe the forbidden fruit was an apple. Say, so, why? Because we have apples. Uh, and it's not forbidden. I, it was a, I think there were things in the garden we couldn't even imagine. I, I think there was fruit that tasted like bacon. I think, it, I think it's, that's what it was. Maybe that was a forbidden fruit. I don't know. But I think there was fruit. There you could pick a, a fruit from one, and you could have like, a, it tasted like a steak. Because you couldn't eat the steak, but man, you could. I think, and there was, God said, everything in this garden is yours. Just don't eat that one thing. That one tree. And they thought, well, that's the best tree. It's better than all this other stuff. We have to have that. Why is God depriving us of so much? He, he didn't say, he, he said, you can have anything you want. Do anything you want. Just don't eat that tree. Oh, God's keeping the best things from us. That was envy. They thought, we have all this food, but the best thing is what God's keeping from us. Tim Keller says, envy will make you think something is wrong, even in paradise. That's why some people are so critical. Some of you know someone who they can find a flaw in everything. And if you think, I don't know anybody like that, then you're that person in someone else's life. You're the critical person that people avoid. But there are people, they can find a flaw in everything. Critical spirit comes from a deep dissatisfaction 
that comes from envy. We need to stop ignoring the check engine light. Envy is a cancer that drives out your soul. Third thing we need to know about envy, what causes envy? Envy ignores God's goodness promised in the future. See, the problem with here, now look, eventually they're going to anger God so much that he's going to make them wander for 40 years. But the original plan wasn't a 40-year wandering. They were only supposed to be in the desert for about 18 months before they get to the promised land and they cross through and they conquer it. But they forgot, no matter how long we're in this desert eating this manna, it's temporary. Because God was leading them to a literal promised land. A land, he said, flowed with milk and honey. Now, that was a metaphor. There wasn't literally milk running down the streets. It was a metaphor for extreme abundance. God said, I'm taking you to a place that will have everything you will ever need in abundance. But before you get there, you're going to have to have this manna, which is still going to be enough for you. I'm still going to provide for you. I'm still going to give you food and water. They forgot their situation was temporary. So here's what I mean. Your situation right now, no matter what it is, is temporary. Now, it may get better on earth. It may not. But here's the thing. If it doesn't get better on earth, it's still temporary. What you lack now, what you think you lack now, is no comparison to what God has promised you in the future. One day, none of us will lack anything. The Bible says in Psalm 17, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. When we open our eyes in heaven and we see Jesus Christ face to face, none of us are going to say, Man, I sure wish I would have had something else. I sure wish I'd have had a nicer car on earth. I sure wish I had a bigger house on earth. I sure wish I had more friends on earth. We see God face to face. We're going to say, it don't matter what I did or didn't have. This is all I need. All I need is Christ. Psalm 16, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. First Corinthians, but as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered to the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We have literally, we have no idea what waits for us. We have no idea the, the, the blessings and the, the majesty that, that is, is before us. Paul says the human tongue can't even explain it. And even if it could, you wouldn't believe it. Because it just seems so incredible what God has for us. Because of the knowledge of what is coming, I can be content with whatever blessings I have on this earth. Because I know, even if there's something that I wish I would have now, it's not going to compare to what God's promised me in the future. Our knowledge of what is coming can keep us content with what we have here. And the last thing we'll look at is envy doubts God's goodness expressed through his guidance. See, God had a purpose for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. In the wilderness, he was, he was teaching them things about their faith, things about their relationship, things that were more valuable than garlic and onions. 
His presence was with them every step of the way. He was in the wilderness. He was keeping them from famine and from war and from disease. But envy kept them from seeing that or believing that. Instead, they saw themselves as alone. They saw themselves as abandoned, being deprived of the good things in life they had when they were slaves. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, he references this story and he says the root cause of envy is idolatry. Idolatry is when you crave something more than you do God. When you, you think that something besides God is what you need to live a happy, joyful life. According to Jesus in John chapter 6, he was a type of man. The manna picture was a type of Christ. It was a picture of what we would receive with Jesus. So when they rejected the manna, they were rejecting the presence of God. In despising the manna, they were saying that God was not enough. What they always had, what we always have, is the ever-present fellowship of God. See, we have the knowledge of His love, the assurance of His promises, and that's enough for us because we know what's coming for us one day. So I have to choose. If I have to choose between garlic and onions or Jesus, I'm always going to choose Jesus. Now, you can say, well, of course, you know, garlic and onions, of course. Okay, if I had to choose between never having to worry about how I'm going to pay my bills, having more money than I know what to do with, being able to take a vacation six, seven times a year to the coast of Florida. And y'all know I love the coast of Florida. If I have to choose between that or life in the presence of God, and every, I never get to do what I want to do, and I'm always worried about things, I'll take this. Because God is more valuable than anything else. Because no matter how much I struggle here, one day I'm going to be in His presence forever. One day I'm going to rule and reign with Him for all of eternity. One day He's going to make the world as it should have been, and there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more nothing. And one day, for all of eternity, y'all know where I'm going to be in the new earth? Beach of Florida for all of eternity. Y'all want to see me? Go to the beach. That's right. And I can say, well, I may not be able to go to the beach. This on earth. I'm going to live on in eternity one day. What is coming is far greater than anything I deal with here. Knowing him is the essence of a happy, joyful life. See, Soren Kierkegaard, he says that envy comes from worship. If you want to know what you truly worship... Look at what you envy. If you worship popularity, you envy those who have more friends than you. If you worship being a perfect mom, you envy those who seem to have it all together. If you worship a happy marriage, you are envious of those that seem to have a better marriage than you. If you worship family stability, then you are envious of those who seem to have a better family than you do. Follow the smoke of your envies to the fires that are before the altars you've built for worship. That's the real problem. And that's where we need to correct the problem of envy. See, Paul wrestled with this in Philippians 4. He says, I do not speak because I have need, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. 
I know both how to face humble circumstances and how to be, have abundance. Everywhere and in all things I have learned the secret both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then he says in verse number 19, But my God shall supply your every need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Paul wrote that verse from prison, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. He's not on vacation. He's not living his best life. But he says, I've had a good life. I've had, I've had abundance. And now I'm sitting in prison, chained to a guard 24 hours a day. But I know that because I have God, no matter what I'm facing, I can be content. The secret to contentment is not being happy or thankful for the little that you have. It's seeing how much you have in a relationship with God. Feast on the manna that Jesus gives you. Knowing him is what our soul craves, and fellowshipping with him is what we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.